In today's episode, we're going over an evidence-based guide to femoral acetabular impingement syndrome. We're going to be going over assessment and treatment. Let's do it. First and foremost, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your support. You truly allow me to do what I love for a living, and this is sharing my passion, fitness, physical therapy, all that good stuff. My name is Dan Pope. I'm a physical therapist. I'm a coach, personal trainer, and meathead. This is the Fitness Pain-Free Show, where we help coaches and physical therapists like you get your patients out of pain and back to training. If you really want to support this channel and go the next step with your learning, consider subscribing to Fitness Pain-Free Insiders. It's a comprehensive educational resource and toolkit for the fitness and rehab professional. Think Netflix, but for trainers and physical therapists. It's got premium content from yours truly, from me, very similar to the podcast you listen to right now, but much more in-depth. I've been updating this monthly for about five years or so. We've got over 100 webinars, ebooks, and complete guides. You have access to a private Facebook group. You can have all of your questions answered by me. Help to decide upcoming podcast topics. So there's something that, that you're really looking to learn more about and you want to hear my opinion on it, whatever it is, you can ask me. I can do that. And you can get started for just $1. After that, it's $12.99 per month. And you can cancel at any time. So head to fitnesspainfree.com, click on the programs link, then click on Fitness Pain Free Insiders Online Library and get yourself started, right? Like I said, if you want to learn more from me, this is the next step. It's only a buck to get started. And if you want to support me, it's the easiest and best way to support me. All right, let's do it. So the bulk of today's uh, episode is going to be going over a research study. It's actually not necessarily a research study. It's a consensus statement. Uh, it's a Warwick Agreement on Femoral Acetabular Impingement Syndrome. And this was done in 2016. Now, what the heck was this? Uh, it is an international, so multiple countries around the world, multidisciplinary, so physical therapists as well as physicians, right? And a couple other uh, smart folks involved as well. It's consensus on diagnosis, or excuse me, diagnosis and treatment of femoral acetabular impingement syndrome. Uh, to the best of my understanding, is a bunch of smart folks get together. They present on the topics they're experts in, and they develop a bunch of pertinent questions, and they try to answer them based on the best available literature. Okay. Uh, uh, excellent paper. You guys can uh, check out the uh, link is in the show notes. And if you want to learn more, definitely read that. But I'm going to try to go through this paper today uh, with a bunch of other papers to give you a good idea of how to work with folks with femoral acetabular impingement syndrome. So what is the history of femoral acetabular impingement syndrome? So the concept originated in 1936, but it wasn't until about 2001 from a surgeon by the name of Gans came up with a theoretical concept of impingement and the potential implications of impingement leading to osteoarthritis over the course of time. It was also in this time, 2001, where a surgical approach or FAI was developed, right? So here's the thing, over the past 10 years or so, really 20 years or so, right? It's 2022 at this point, the number of patients diagnosed has risen substantially diagnosed with FAI, as well as all the surgeries and treatment that's associated with it, okay? So now there's more procedures, there's higher healthcare costs, and the question becomes, are these treatments actually substantiated? Are we doing a bunch of these surgeries, right, injections, whatever it is, uh, and is it actually helping our patients, right? Uh, the other question we have is, are our diagnostic tools even accurate? So in 2012, Clohissey and Kim, which is a bunch of orthopedic surgeons, got together to develop a consensus statement for how to treat femoral acetabular impingement syndrome, Okay. Uh, the only issue with this is that it was a bunch of surgeons, but there are definitely other professionals that work with femoral acetabular impingement syndrome. So in 2016, this Warwick agreement was a multidisciplinary approach, which means they brought in physios or physical therapists, sports physicians, surgeons, and radiologists 
uh, 22 total expert clinicians and academics to try to answer some of the questions we have about femoral acetabular impingement syndrome. What I will say is that this is still very much an ongoing study. We're learning more and more about this, and we're trying to figure out the best way to treat our patients. So what is femoral acetabular impingement syndrome? This is a condition of the hip, and it's defined as a motion-related clinical disorder of the hip with a triad of symptoms, clinical signs, and imaging findings. It represents symptomatic premature contact between the, the proximal femur and the acetabulum, okay, the ball and socket of the hip joint. So the initial diagnosis by Gans et al. was an abnormal morphology of the femur and or acetabulum. We'll go over that in a bit and what that actually is. Abnormal contact between these two structures and especially vigorous superphysiological motion that results in such abnormal contact and collision. So not only do we have contact, it's too much contact in that area. And this repetitive motion is going to result in continuous insult and pain. And you're also going to have the presence of soft tissue damage, which will be labral pathology. Okay. Now, the problem with this initial diagnosis is that you can have all these things occurring in the hip without any pain. Okay. So the newer definition of femoral acetabular impingement syndrome needs to be in the presence of clinical symptoms. Okay. It's a very large amount of asymptomatic hips. We'll talk about those numbers in a minute. So this new criteria developed by the, the Warwick agreement in 2016 was that clinical signs and relevant imaging findings must be present for all diagnosis. Okay. So it's not just having damage within the hip, having a cam or a pincer morphology, it's actually having pain and symptoms go along with it. So what's the relevant anatomy for femoral acetabular impingement syndrome? So first, I apologize if you're listening to this via the podcast. At some point, you're going to have to hop on YouTube or Spotify to see the video of this. So on the left, we have an image of the ball and socket joint of the hip. You have half a pelvis as well as the femur, right? So the socket portion of the ball and socket joint is on the pelvis, okay? The ball portion is on the femur, and as you can see, they fit together really well, okay? On the inside of this joint, you have a few structures that we're going to be concerned about, right? So around the ball and socket joint is something called the acetabular labrum, and this labrum actually contains fluid, and the fluid is going to sit between the ball and the socket and provide cushioning and shock absorption when we're running, jumping, changing directions, and squatting, okay? Now, the issue with femoral acetabular impingement syndrome is that over the course of time, you can cause some wear of the labrum, right? You can tear the labrum and you can lose this fluid between the ball and socket. Because of that, theoretically, there can be some more wearing and tearing of the cartilage and potentially more osteoarthritis over the course of time. Okay. And we do have some research to show this does happen. So if you have a cam morphology or labral tear, it does increase the likelihood that you have osteoarthritis over the course of time. So here we have a hip joint. So take a look at this right here. This would be the ball portion, and this would be the sock portion, of the ball and socket. This is my pelvis right here. So when I go into hip flexion, okay, so when I bring my leg up like this, I can get contact between the ball portion right here and the socket portion right here. So I have extra bone growth right on this portion or this portion right here. I will make premature contact between the ball and the socket. Okay. 
And if I have too much of this over the course of time, that can lead to the labrum being pushed off, okay, and create some labral damage. And the two motions generally that are going to cause this are going to be hip flexion, okay, as well as hip rotation, particularly hip internal rotation. Because what that does is it presses the cam morphology or the extra bone on the neck or ball portion of the ball and socket up against the acetabulum or the socket. And that can create a pushing effect of the labrum off of its attachment. So we're also looking for relevant radiographic findings when diagnosing femoral acetabular impingement syndrome. So looking at the image here, we have a couple of different hips, okay? You can see you've got the ball and socket joint, just like we described previously. And you can see the, the uh, labrum, which is pink in this diagram, okay? So on the far left, you have a normal femur and a normal acetabulum. But if you look in the center, they have what's called a cam morphology. You can see that red bump, which is basically extra bone on the neck of the ball portion of the ball and socket joint, okay? As we discussed previously, if we have a lot of extra bone on the ball portion, that's going to cause premature contact of the ball up against the socket and can push the labrum off. Okay. On the far right, you have what's called a pincer deformity or pin, excuse me, pincer morphology. So that's essentially over coverage of the socket over the ball. Because of this, you can have premature contact of the ball up against the socket when doing hip flexion and hip rotation which over the course of time, if there's excessive motion, this can lead to pain, FAI syndrome, or labral pathology. Now, what's really important to keep in mind is that there are a lot of asymptomatic findings in a general population, as well as a sporting population. So if you look at some of this CAM morphology, it's most common in males with a history of sports competition. Depending on the sport and the population in the study, Somewhere between 40 and 75% of all male athletes will have CAM morphology, all right? So relatively common in a general population. So folks that don't all necessarily play sports, somewhere between 5 and 23% of people are going to have CAM morphology. So obviously there's something about playing a sport that leads to CAM issues, but it's still actually pretty common in a general population. Now looking at the pincer morphology, that's the overcoverage, so more bone on the acetabulum or socket. Around 30% of young adults also have these pincer morphologies. So very common to have both cam as well as pincer. So in the Warwick agreement, they came to the consensus that FAI syndrome is a motion-related clinical disorder of the hip with a triad of symptoms, clinical signs, and imaging findings. It represents symptomatic premature contact between the proximal femur and the acetabulum, just like we spoke about previously. So how do we go about diagnosing femoral acetabular impingement syndrome? Well, there's four things we can rely on. Those are going to be symptoms, clinical signs, imaging, right, x-rays, and then lastly, injections. So what types of symptoms are common in femoral acetabular impingement syndrome? Well, you may have motion-related pain. What does that mean? So if you play a given sport, it may hurt while you're playing the given sport, okay? For me, I worked with a lot of folks in the strength and fitness world, and typically it hurts most during deep squats or lots and lots of hip flexion combined with hip internal rotation range of motion, okay? Pain can also be present in certain positions. Uh, one of the more common places where people experience pain is with sitting. Sounds silly, right? When you're sitting down, you're not doing a whole heck of a lot, 
But when you sit down, you're in hip flexion, right? Which could be pressing on the labrum, giving you more compression within the ball and socket joint and creating some of your symptoms. Okay. Where is the pain felt in FAI? Generally it's felt somewhere in the hip or groin, right? Most folks they're having femoral acetabular impingement uh, surgery, right? So they're having a labral repair with some sort of cam reduction. Uh, generally speaking, they're having pain in the hip or the groin. However, you can also have some pain in the back, the buttock, the thigh, either on the side or the front. And the pain is typically severe and very limiting. Okay. This is not something that hurts a little bit. Typically it hurts quite a bit. It's very limiting for folks. All right. What associated findings do you have with femoral acetabular impingement syndrome? You can have some clicking, catching, locking, and stiffness, right? A lot of folks will have restricted range of motion, uh, mostly in hip flexion and internal rotation. Uh, when you flex and internally rotate the hip, it brings cam morphology into the acetabulum. So generally, that's the reason why those motions are going to be limited because it hurts. It doesn't feel good. Your body doesn't want you to go there. All right. And lastly, these patients will also describe some sort of giving way, right? What are the clinical signs you'll see with femoral acetabular impingement syndrome? Well, you can use hip impingement tests, okay? Uh, and this was a pretty cool study by Paulson et al. in 2020. They're looking at sensitivity and specificity of a bunch of different special tests for the hip. And what they found were a couple sensitive tests, which are going to be the anterior impingement tests, which basically have a patient lie on their back. You flex their hip to 90 degrees, you internally rotate the hip, and then you horizontally adduct the hip, okay? If this creates the patient's specific symptoms, right? The reason why they came in to see you that day, that's going to have an 80% sensitivity and a 26% specificity, right? So that's a very sensitive test. It's going to be good for ruling out FAI syndrome. It's not going to be very good for ruling in FAI syndrome, okay? The other sensitive test was the failure test, which is flexion, adduction, internal rotation. Basically, the patient lies on their back. You flex the hip maximally, internally rotate the hip and adduct the hip, right? And if that reproduces the symptoms, 80% sensitivity, 25% specificity. So again, terrible for ruling in FAI syndrome, but great for ruling out FAI syndrome. How about specific tests? How can we rule in FAI syndrome? Well, the one test that was actually pretty good and had a high specificity was going to be internal rotation range of motion testing. And what you have your patient do is have them lie on their belly, okay, bring their knees together, flex the knees to 90 degrees, and then maximally internally rotate both hips, okay? Now, if you have limited range of motion and or pain, that's a positive test, which has a 29% sensitivity, so terrible for ruling out FAI syndrome, but has a great specificity of 94%. So if this test is, uh, excuse me, positive, it's a good likelihood, 94% likelihood that person does have FAI syndrome. Next, I want to talk a little bit about the Faber test because that's actually a really popular hip pathology test, but it doesn't have a very good sensitivity or specificity. In this study, the Faber test had a 54% sensitivity. So it's basically a coin flip, whether or not this test is accurate, right? And has a 38% specificity. So even worse for ruling in pathology. So if you're relying on the Faber test to be good at picking up pathology in FAI syndrome, not very good. Okay. My thought, and I'm not exactly sure why this is, but for the majority of folks that have FAI syndrome and associated labral pathology, 
they have most of their um, issues within the anterior superior or the top front part of the joint. Okay. Now, when you do a failure test or anterior impingement test, you are compressing the front of the joint. When you do a Faber test, you're not necessarily doing this. I think this is one of the reasons why it's going to be a little less sensitive and a little less specific. But again, that's just a guess. What other clinical signs are you going to see with FAI syndrome? Well, for one, typically there's going to be limited range of motion. Now, there's mixed evidence on whether or not this actually occurs. Okay, so take this with a grain of, uh, excuse me, grain of salt. But typically the motions that are going to be limited are going to be hip flexion and hip internal rotation or a combination of both. And the reason why this is, is because most hip pathology is in the front top part of the hip joint. And when you combine hip flexion with internal rotation, it takes that can morphology and pushes it directly up against the acetabulum, creates symptoms. So if your body doesn't want you to do that because there's an injury there, it's going to limit hip flexion and hip internal rotation. This is exactly the reason why when folks have FAI syndrome, I don't like cranking them into hip flexion and hip internal rotation. Unfortunately, that's a pretty popular treatment for this online. And I think it's probably more of picking the scab than it is helpful. But that's, again, my opinion. Okay. What else are you going to find? Generally speaking, there are abnormal movement patterns. And this happens with any sort of pain problem. And the idea is your body is potentially trying to protect you. So you move a little bit differently to avoid irritating the joint. Okay. So let's say you're going for a squat. You have your patient perform a squat and they have FAI syndrome. You might notice a weight shift away from the painful side. You might also notice a bit of a posterior pelvic tilt. Okay. So the individual tries to tilt their, excuse me, tip their tail a little bit, kind of like a dog that's scared, takes its tail, puts it between its legs, posterior pelvic tilts. And they can often do this on one side. It's really interesting to watch folks with FAI syndrome move, right? You may also notice that there's going to be some sort of toe out or knee out on the symptomatic side. Uh, again, they're probably trying to avoid loading that irritated spot in front of the hip. You'll notice the hips turn a little bit, or you'll notice a little bit of knee out. Uh, again, this is all probably because they're trying to avoid loading the irritated position. The other big thing that you're probably going to find with FAI patients is hip weakness. Okay. I'm taking these numbers directly from a research article. Um, and I think it's a pretty good piece of information for physical therapists to know, uh, just because I don't believe this is common knowledge, but FAI patients had significant, significantly lower strength than controls for hip adduction, 28% deficit flexion, 26% deficit external rotation, 18% deficit and abduction, 11% deficit compared to the opposite side. Okay. Now, one of the reasons why I think this is important to understand is because typically with physical therapists, we're always concerned with strengthening hip abductors and external rotators. You know, it's kind of like the bread and butter for physical therapists. However, there's actually a more significant weakness into hip adduction. Okay. And hip flexion, which are two motions we probably have to help to restore after someone has FAI syndrome, especially after they've had surgery. We just have to be cautious when we start to push this because we don't want to aggravate that healing hip. Okay. The last thing that we should be doing is trying to rule out other pathology. Okay. That could be masquerading as FAI syndrome. So that could be a groin strain. That could be greater trochanteric syndrome. That could be a hip, hip flexor strain. We just have to make sure we do our due diligence to rule out other pathologies. So what kind of imaging do we need to diagnose femoral acetabular impingement syndrome? So we are required to either see a cam morphology or a pincer morphology or both, because sometimes we actually have both of those coexisting within a hip. Okay. 
What is cam morphology? It's a flattening or convexity of the head slash neck junction. Okay. I have an image here of a hip with a cam morphology. And then I have another image right next to it after someone had surgery to remove the cam morphology. And you can see there's extra bone on the ball portion of the ball and socket joint. And they just scoop that right out. So there's no longer that same bone there. Okay. The way that surgeons will quantify how big the cam morphology is, is with something called an alpha angle. And what's unfortunate is that we don't know what normal exactly is in a general population. Uh, but suffice to say, the bigger the alpha angle, the bigger the cam morphology. But it's not like if you pass 60 or 65, then we need to do surgery. But if you're below a 60 or 60 out of five or 60 or 65, then we don't. Okay. So we don't really know exactly what normal is, but they're going to tell you how big the cam morphology is based on this alpha angle. Now, the pincer morphology is the other type of bony morphology within the hip. And that's essentially an overcoverage of the femoral head by the acetabulum. Basically, there's a little bit too much socket, extra bone on the socket, and that's going to cause premature contact of the ball up against the socket when we go into hip flexion, hip rotation. Okay. The way we measure how much of a pincer morphology we have is with something called the center edge angle. And again, just like cam morphology, we have no clear consensus on what abnormal is. We can also use injections to help to diagnose FAI syndrome. Okay. Now, what does this mean? So what surgeons will often do, the ones I work with, is they will put a local anesthetic directly into the joint. And if they notice that the symptoms go away, that helps to rule in FAI or labral pathology. Now, if it doesn't help whatsoever, then it helps to rule out FAI and starts to rule in other pathologies like tendon pain, which is pretty common. So the surgeons I tend to work with like to use this injection to try to figure out the best candidates for labral surgery. What is the most appropriate treatment for femoral acetabular impingement syndrome? Well, What's a little unfortunate is that we don't have the best evidence to determine the absolute best pathway for most folks, okay? But there's three main options. You can either go with more conservative care. You can do some sort of rehabilitation, which would be physiotherapy, physical therapy, depending on what part of the, uh, the world you live in, where the last option is going to be surgery, okay? At the end of the day, this should be a shared decision-making process with the patient, physical therapist, the surgeon, and anyone else who's relevant within their multidisciplinary team. So what does conservative care consist of? What does the research say conservative care is? Conservative care is generally some sort of patient education about FAI syndrome. Typically, these folks are taught about how to modify their activities or their lifestyles not to aggravate the hip joint. Sometimes it consists of some sort of oral medication, some sort of uh, medicine to help with the hip pain. Oftentimes, um, these patients will get an interarticular steroid injection, something to reduce some of the pain within the hip. And the last thing that conservative care consists of is watchful waiting, which is basically giving the injury time, seeing if it's improving. It's if improving, great. That's what we want. If it's not, then maybe we choose a different intervention, right? So what does physical therapy or physiotherapy consist of for femoral acetabular impingement syndrome? So one of the problems looking at the literature about FAI syndrome is that the treatments are all over the place, right? So we're not exactly sure which treatments are going to be the best. OK, 
Okay. There are studies are going on right now where we're trying to parse out what's the best type of treatment from physical therapy perspective for FAI syndrome. We're not hundred percent yet, but the studies that show promise are generally working on improving range of motion, strengthening the musculature around the hip joint, increasing the stability of the hip joint, working on neuromuscular control of the joint and the muscles around the hip, as well as working towards improving movement patterns. Okay. Again, but we're not exactly sure what the best treatments are in physical therapy. So there was a study by Joanne Kemp was the lead author in 2021, where she was trying to determine what the best forms of treatment are for hip pathology, like FAI syndrome. Okay. Uh, what are the best treatments from a physical therapy standpoint? What are the best treatments from a surgical standpoint? What's the best option for patients? And here's what she ended up finding. One, just like I said previously, there's an absolute paucity of literature in this field, right? So we need to do some more research to determine what the best treatments are for these folks. And luckily, Joanne Kemp is actually doing more research in the future to figure this stuff out, okay? Um, hold on to your butts. We'll see what the results are in time, right? Uh, she showed that physiotherapy interventions improve strength and function, but the effects on pain and quality of life are uncertain, right? So if you have FAI syndrome and you strengthen that hip, Usually you improve your strength, your function gets a bit better, but the effects on pain and quality of life, a mm, little bit uncertain. Okay. So targeted strengthening exercise programs of at least three months might have the best effect versus other forms of physio. Okay. So if you're looking at things like manual therapies, range of motion, that type of thing, seems like strengthening so far is probably the strongest thing that we have as physical therapists. Uh, however, we need more um, time to research this, to figure out what the best options are. Joanne and her colleagues found that hip arthroscopy surgery. So getting surgery to repair the labrum, as well as to trim down the cam or the pincer had a small positive benefit over physiotherapy at eight to 12 months. So what that means is that surgery actually outperformed physical therapy at eight to 12 months. At 24 months, there was limited evidence suggesting there's no difference between groups. So if you follow these folks out two years, right, from the initial injury, right, one group had surgery, one didn't, it seems as though there's no difference between groups, okay? And despite physio providing significant improvements, very few of the studies surpass minimal important change, okay? And what that means is that if you do physical therapy for FAI syndrome, you're going to make a significant change with that patient but it's probably not a very large change. Okay. And that's a little bit unfortunate. And the thing that pops into my mind is that, Hey, are we that effective at treating FAI syndrome? So we know surgery is helpful. We know physical therapy is helpful, but it might not be that helpful, right? So we're still trying to optimize our treatment for these folks. So what does surgery look like for folks with FAI syndrome? Okay. So if you get surgery for FAI syndrome, you're going to have one or more procedures listed here right? So generally speaking, they're going to reshape that cam morphology. We saw the image earlier where the surgeon goes in and they cut off the cam, reducing the alpha angle of the femoral neck, right? The next thing, if it's present, is they can trim the acetabulum. So if there's a pincer morphology, what they'll do is they'll, they'll trim off the extra bone. They'll make sure they don't damage the cartilage in the process, and it reduces that overcoverage of the socket over the ball, Okay. Also, they're going to repair the labrum. Um, there's a couple options here. So if it's not too much damage, they can easily just stitch it back together. If there's too much damage, they can actually reconstruct the area uh, with, let's say, a cadaver labrum. 
okay? And if there is any cartilage damage, they can try to repair that as well. Uh, the one I see most commonly is microfracture. So they poke a bunch of holes in the bone where the cartilage damage is, and the body fills that back in with some more cartilage over the course of time, okay? Uh, that does become a little bit more relevant when it comes to rehabilitation after you've had uh, FAI surgery, but this is a, a topic for another day, so we're not going to go too in-depth there. So here's another study in the American Journal of Sports Medicine from 2018. Lead author was Andrew T. Pennock. And what they did is they took 93 hips with FAI syndrome, okay? The study length was two years, right? What they found was that 70% of all of these hips were managed with physical therapy, rest, and activity modification, okay? An additional 12% of those hips went on to require a steroid injection, and lastly, only 18% of hips required surgery, okay? So when folks come in the door with FAI syndrome, you can give them an idea of how many folks end up needing surgery based on this study, okay? And the last piece is that among all of these individuals, so physiotherapy, steroid injection, and surgery, they had a similar outcome across all groups. Like we said earlier in the previous study by Joanne Kemp, it seems like FAI surgery or physical therapy tends to have a similar outcome depending on the study you look at. Some of the studies are showing that surgery is superior, but not by a whole heck of a lot. Okay. Here's another recent study in the Journal of Orthopedic Surgery Research from 2022. Author was Yanlin Zhu et al. Conservative therapy versus arthroscopic surgery of FAI syndrome. What they're trying to figure out is, is if physical therapy is a way to go or arthroscopic surgery is a way to go with FAI syndrome. Okay. And here's what they show. Surgery was superior to conservative care at six and 12 month follow-up. However, both groups improved and there was a non-significant difference in some of the outcome measures. Okay. So if you start to read through this study, you'll find, yes, surgery did outperform physical therapy in a few outcome measures, excuse me, but other outcome measures showed the same progress over the course of time. Okay. The other problem here is that we don't have a great definition of what conservative care is. Okay. They were looking at six different studies with this, within this analysis. So in this study, conservative care consisted of, um, including, but not limited to patient education, activity modification, oral anti-inflammatories, physical therapy, intra-articular musculoskeletal injection therapies, right? So they could have any number of these treatments. So again, we need to do more research on FAI syndrome. It does appear that surgery is slightly better, probably not by a whole heck of a lot. And the other piece is that we're not controlling for all the different types of conservative care and treatments when we're comparing against surgery, okay? So we just need more research. So what can we conclude about the appropriate treatments for FAI syndrome? So one, we should have a shared decision-making process with the patient and the multidisciplinary team, okay? So this needs to be a decision that's made by the physician, the patient, the physical therapist, whoever else is involved with the patient's care to get the best possible outcome for that individual, okay? Like I said previously, we need more research on this topic, okay? It does make sense to trial physiotherapy first. It's far less costly. It is less invasive. Okay. It also may improve your symptoms quite well and your function adequately. Okay. I have certainly seen a lot of folks with FAI syndrome. I've had it myself on both hips where I've trialed conservative care. So basically some physical therapy, some activity modification. My hips feel great now. I don't think I need surgery. I'm happy with my decision, right? 
Uh, the next piece is that we should probably do some sort of strengthening in our physiotherapy, and this should go on for approximately three months. Okay. I'm seeing this pop up more and more in our literature. Uh, most physical therapy interventions should probably last closer to three months to see an effect. Okay. Uh, there are a few pathologies where you don't need quite as much, but it seems like this three month mark is what we need, at least for FAI, uh, although we need more research. And then if you're not making progress over the course of time, yeah, you can progress to surgery, but you don't necessarily need to do it right away. So what is the prognosis of FAI syndrome? So for one, we know that symptoms will frequently improve via surgery as well as physiotherapy. Okay. Most folks generally turn to full activity and that's including sports. However, when folks return back to sports, we're not sure if they're returning back at the same level they were playing at previously. Okay. Again, more research needs to be done, but generally speaking, these folks return to activity and return back to sports. So if you don't seek any treatment for FAI syndrome, what's going to happen? Well, the experts at the Warwick Agreement decided that it's probably going to worsen over the course of time. Okay. Now we don't have the best research for this, but suffice to say, I think a common trend right now in the social media world is that everything reverts to the mean. So we don't need to treat things as aggressively as we do. However, the foremost experts in the world are disagreeing with this, right? So a lot of these folks are not going to revert to the mean. So it probably makes sense that we should intervene with at least something that's not so invasive, just like physiotherapy. Okay. What is the long-term outlook in folks, in folks that have FAI syndrome? Uh, well, this is unfortunate, but it's largely unknown. We actually don't know what the long-term outlook is going to be. We do know that folks that have CAM morphology, this is going to be associated with increased risk of osteoarthritis. Same thing goes with labral pathology. Um, there's going to be a high relative risk, but a low absolute risk. So if you have a CAM morphology, it means that you still have a very low risk of getting, let's say, a hip replacement. However, your risk is higher than someone who doesn't have CAM morphology, right? And then we also don't know, unfortunately, if surgery or other treatments reduce the likelihood of osteoarthritis. Now, this is a little bit unfortunate because a lot of folks will end up getting labral repair CAM reduction because they want to have less osteoarthritis over the course of time. It makes sense if you restore the labrum, restore the fluid that's within the joint, decrease some of the um, pressure that the cartilage is taking, reduce some of that wear and tear. Hopefully, you'll extend the lifespan of that joint. We just don't know if that's actually true or not, right? Take some more time, a little more research to figure that out. Lastly, should we treat asymptomatic hip morphology? So let's say I have a really big cam morphology, big alpha angle, right? Or if I have a big pincer morphology, lots and lots of over coverage, should I get surgery? Should I have physical therapy? Should I modify my activities? Am I destined to hurt if I row or do another Sport requires a ton of hip flexion. Well, we don't know, right? <laughs> and that's a bit unfortunate, but hopefully over the course of time, we'll figure out whether or not these things do end up becoming problematic. Um, who knows? It does seem like a majority of athletes in a lot of these studies have CAM morphology. Uh, so suffice to say, it may end up being a normal occurrence. It might not be something we need to worry about too much. However, do keep in mind that CAM does increase the likelihood of getting a total hip replacement, although that's a very low risk. All right. It still is a risk. So we'll see over the course of time. Uh, personally, I don't think that you should go about um, um, having your patients go get some surgery, right? Because they have CAM morphology at all at this point. Okay. I really don't think so. 
Lastly, if you want to see exactly how I treat my patients with femoral acetabular impingement, how we get them out of pain, how we get them back to training in the gym, check out my ultimate guide to getting out of hip pain and back to squatting, deadlifting, and Olympic weightlifting. It's a step-by-step -step guide to show you exactly how I get these folks out of pain and back in the gym where they belong. I'll leave the link in the show notes so you can check that out. Lastly are all my references. These are all going to be available in the show notes. So if you're interested in any particular study, they'll be there. Here are the references for my images. And then lastly, thank you so much for your support. You truly allow me to do what I love for a living. If you're watching this on YouTube, I'd love to hear your feedback. Leave a comment, like. If you're not already subscribed to the channel, please do that. If you're listening to this via a podcast, then leave me a positive rating and review. It helps me tremendously. I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. If you want to go that extra step in supporting me and learning more, the next logical step is signing up for Fitness Pain-Free Insiders. Head to fitnesspainfree.com. Click on the programs link. Click on Fitness Pain-Free Insiders Online Library. Just a dollar to get started. $12.99 per month. Afterwards, you can cancel any time. It's the best way to support me. Thank you again very much, and I'll see you on the next one.